Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 647 with Cal Newport. Cal was on my list of guests I wanted from the inception of the show. So, hey, 647 episodes later is a great time for him. He's got a great bit of work and thought associated with the end of email, why email is problematic, and how you could break free from your own email inbox. So, you'll learn one, how email changed the way we work for the worse. Two, Simple strategies for cutting down that email back and forth. And three, why we feel guilty when we don't respond, even if we quote shouldn't, and what to do about it. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP647. And if more email is what you need, (laughs) sorry, I couldn't resist. Well, Cal's talking about the good and the bad uses of email. And I think one good use of email is the gold nugget email newsletter, which enables you to access the wisdom of this conversation with Cal and every guest who's gone before him in a quick email you can read in about two or three minutes and access to the vault of all 647 guests. So prudently discern if that is an appropriate use of your email. Legions of people have decided that it is. So that's that story. Here's Cal's story. Cal Newport is an associate professor of computer science at Georgetown University. In addition to researching cutting-edge technology, he also writes about the impact of those innovations on our culture. Newport is the author of six books, including the New York Times bestseller, Digital Minimalism, which argues that we should be much more selective about the technologies we adopt in our personal lives, and Deep Work, which argues that focus is the new IQ in the modern workplace. Newport's work has been published in over 25 languages and has been featured in many major publications, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, New Yorker, Washington Post, and Economist, and of course, his own long-running blog, Study Hacks, which receives over 3 million visits a year. He's also a frequent guest on NPR. Big thanks to Cal for sharing his wisdom with us. A big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here is Cal. Cal, welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Well, I'm so excited to dig into your wisdom. But first, I got to hear one of the most noteworthy things about you, which is an interesting comment to make in this day and age, is that you have no social media accounts. Can you tell us why and how it's going for you? It's true. I think I'm the last person under the age of 65 and above the (laughs) age of 12, for which that's true. I'll tell you what, this has not been that bad of a period to not be on social media. (laughs) I think if you could 
measure cortisol levels and graph it somehow, you would have all of American culture, all American society, and then me probably a good 50% below it because I'm just not exposed to the up to the minute fretting and doom scrolling. Uh, So it's been good. So basically, it turns out it's allowed. I just for (laughs) idiosyncratic reasons a long time ago, I'm talking 2004, I just decided, oh, I think I'm not going to use social media which at the point, that, w- that was not a fraught decision in 2004 because there was not that much social media, but I just sort of stuck with it because why not? And it has given me this really interesting vantage point. I'm like an anthropologist able to look around me and watch the impact of social media on everyone else's lives with a little bit of distance. I mean, I'm one of the last people who's never actually had an account, so I can actually study it with some distance. And here's what I'll say. I know what's going on in the world. I still have friends. I still find ways to be entertained. I still manage to sell books and run a business. So it might not be as bad as people fear. All right. I'll take it. And, and have there been any downsides, any regrets, anything you miss? Maybe you can't miss it if you've never had it. But uh... <laughs> No, not really. And I'll tell you what happened that helped reduce regret is the big social media platforms, they had initially had this claim that were valuable because of network effects. We are the best way to connect with friends and family, and we're the platform where all your friends and family are. So if you're not on Facebook or if you're not on Instagram, you can't connect with your friends and family. But they basically gave that up about five or six years ago and said, no, no, what we're really about is entertainment. We're kind of leveraging your social connections to learn the type of stuff you're interested in. But what we are is a stream of things to look at. And most of this digital interaction with friends and family began to shift from social media over to tools like text message Mm -hmm. or Zoom calls or other types of tools like that, which I do use. Gotcha. And so I'm not missing out on the original promise, which is this is how you keep up with friends and family, because that has largely moved off of social platforms. Now they're just a highly addictive form of entertainment. And I don't know, I think I've found other ways to entertain myself. So, so far, so good. All right. Well, let's talk about your latest work, A World Without Email, provocative. Could you kick us off with maybe one of your most surprising and fascinating discoveries you made as you're doing your research there? Well. I was surprised to discover the extent to which how we work today, which I call the hyperactive hive mind workflow, which is put simply, work unfolds with a constant unstructured stream of ad hoc messaging, whether that's delivered through email or Slack or whatever tool you want to use. I was surprised by the extent to which that way of working is basically arbitrary. Mm -hmm. So we assume all of this emailing and slacking, like we do this because it's a pain, but it's more productive. Or this is how work gets done. If we if we didn't always communicate with each other, if we weren't constantly, here's a message, here's a here's an email, here's a reply, here's a CC, that we would somehow be less productive. And it was rationally decided by you know managers and consultants. And at some point, people figured out this is a better way of working. Turns out that's not true. Hmm. It largely emerged somewhat haphazardly. More is just a side effect of what this new tool made available, and it interacted in an unpredictable way with just human nature. And you can document this, but basically we stumbled into this world of sort of constant, ongoing, unstructured conversation. And then we look backwards and tried to justify it and live with it. And one of the big claims in this book is that there's nothing fundamental about, let's put an email address associated with every person. Let's put everyone on a Slack channel and just rock and roll to figure things out. There's nothing fundamental about that being the best way to do knowledge work. And in fact, when you really look closely at it, it's actually a pretty terrible way of doing it for a lot of factors. And there's many other ways you could approach it. So I think that degree to which this is just In some sense, email's decision that we work this way and not our own was definitely a liberating discovery for me as I got deeper into these topics. 
Oh, that is intriguing. All right. So we just kind of fell into it. And so lay it on us. So, so why is it terrible? What makes email so detrimental to knowledge worker productivity? Well, the first thing I'll further clarify, just so we have like a foundation for the discussion, is the title is sort of provocatively succinct when I say world without email. But what I really mean, this would be a less sexy title, is a world without the hyperactive hive mind workflow that email introduced. Okay. So when I say a world without email, what I mean is a, a working world in which constant, unstructured, unscheduled conversation is not at the core of how we get things done. Uh, the problem with that workflow that hyperactive high mind workflow is that it forces us to switch cognitive context constantly. So you say that four times fast. <laughs> because if you have to be maintaining dozens of these ongoing asynchronous, unstructured, unscheduled conversations, all these different threads, because that's how everything gets figured out from figuring out how to deal with a new client to scheduling something to pulling together bullet points for the strategy menu. If all of this is happening on asynchronous threads, unstructured, unscheduled, just messages going back and forth. The only way for work to move forward is you have to constantly be monitoring and tending these threads. That's why when you look at the data, you see that people check their email inbox on average something once every six minutes. It's not irrational behavior. It's not a lack of willpower. It's the only way you can keep up with so much ongoing concurrent communication is you have to keep checking. The problem is every time you check an inbox or check a Slack channel, you induce a context shift within your brain. So you're switching your attention from the primary thing you're working on to an inbox full of messages, most of which you can't address right there in that moment. And then you're trying to bring your attention back to the main thing. That creates a huge pileup within your brain that reduces your effectiveness, it stresses you out, it makes you anxious, it makes it harder for you to think. So we've basically designed an approach to work that accidentally really reduces our ability to actually do work. We just cannot maintain these two parallel tracks of constantly monitoring communication while also trying to work on other things. We're not wired for that. It goes against our sort of fundamental neuronal architecture. And I think it's been a real big hindrance to both productivity, but also people's happiness. Okay. Well, so then I'm curious, we had Dave Crenshaw on the show recently talked about the myth of multitasking and talking a bit about switching costs. Can you Dig into that a little bit, sort of just how costly is it when we do that? Is Do we lose a few seconds or something much greater? I would say it's much greater. It's hard to exactly quantify, but every time you're doing one of those email checks, you might induce 10 to 15 minutes of notably reduced cognitive capacity where one half your mind is still trying to figure out, well, what about this message from our boss? And we've all had that experience of writing emails in our head, yeah. which is like a real indication of our mind is it sees these open loop social communications it wants to have to deal with that. Now, the issue is if you're checking your inbox on average once every six minutes, that means you never escape that effect. So the typical knowledge worker is basically spending the vast majority of their time in a significantly reduced cognitive state. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's almost as if every 30 minutes you walk by and gave everyone in your office a shot. Like here, take some whiskey, right? <laughs> I mean, it's not that, I mean, it's, it's less fun, right? <laughs> but it kind of has a similar effect. So we're, we're talking about not, oh, I, I'm wasting a few minutes. It, we're talking instead, like maybe you're at 50% of what you could produce. So in that ballpark at 50%, okay, that's yeah. striking. And, and could you share, is there any uh, provocative studies or experiments or, or, or bits of research that can you know, put an a exclamation point on this? Well, the, the idea that there's these switching costs is something that goes back to research from even the early 20th century. But there was a, a researcher named Sophie Leroy who more recently really applied this idea of switching costs to exactly the context 
of working in an office. And she had a really interesting background. I tell her story in the book because I spent some time interviewing her. She had actually been in uh, academia. She'd been working on her degree. And then she went and worked in industry. And then when she came back to academia from industry, she said, man, there's this thing going on out there that wasn't like it was before with all of these messaging. This was the early 2000s. We have to study that. And so she had this, this dual background where she had a business background. She was in organizational management, but she'd also trained in psychology. So she understood the brain. And she exactly was quantifying what happens when you do this context switching and you're trying to do actual office work. Mm-hmm. And so she had subjects come in to do this research and they were giving them office work style tasks, like reading resumes and uh, trying to summarize and rank candidates, like the type of stuff you would really do in knowledge work. And they would interrupt them. You know, so the, the, the researcher would come in and they would interrupt them. They, they had various ways of doing it, but it would be, you know, hey, you forgot to fill out this form that we need for our research. And they could really precisely measure the impact on their performance. So the groups that got interrupted and the groups that didn't, and you could just see that performance. You can see it drop. I mean, you can just watch the numbers as it drops. They recall less information when they're working on puzzles. They make more mistakes. And so Sophie Leroy's research really makes clear the degree to which these switches, boom, you just watch performance graphs just drop. All right. Well, so then tell us, what is the superior alternative? Well, so once we understand the issue is the workflow, the good thing about that is that it it takes off a lot of sort of common responses off the table. So when you understand like, oh, the hyperactive hive mind, this fundamental way that the way we organize work and identify and assign a review task, the way we do this is just messaging back and forth. Like when you understand that is the underlying way you do work, then you realize that superficial fixes won't get you there. To say, let's talk about etiquette. Let's talk about norms. Let's talk about turning off notifications. Let's talk about checking your email in batches. Let's talk about having a rule that says, don't expect you to answer emails after five or whatever. None of that's going to solve the underlying problem so long as the underlying way that you organize work is unstructured ad hoc messaging. So in the book, what I really push is forget those superficial fixes. Forget the etiquette, forget the norms. You got to actually (laughs) replace, you have to replace the underlying workflow. This is how we do this type of work. This is how uh, we identify, assign, and review tasks. You have to replace it with something better than the hyperactive hive mind. You don't need advice for how to deal with your overflowing inbox more efficiently. You need to change the structure of your business so that that inbox is not overflowing. Mm-hmm. And basically, two-thirds of the book gets into principles for how to redesign, whether it's in your own life as an employee or if you're an entrepreneur that runs your own company or if you're an executive of a big team, how do you begin this reengineering process? How do you begin seeing your work in terms of there's different processes? And we can actually talk about each process. This is how we're going to do this. This is how the information is going to flow. No, we don't just figure this out on email. For this, we have weekly status meetings. We have a shared document. We have this, whatever it is. There's tons of examples. But you begin to explicitly engineer how work happens in a way that minimizes all this ad hoc unscheduled messaging, stops all the context shifting, and makes work much more sequential. This, then this, then this. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's really beautiful in that I've personally had some experiences with that. It's like, it seems like I'm sending a lot of emails back and forth about this. That needs to stop. How would I go about stopping that? Well, I guess we're going to make a standard process associated with boom, boom, boom. And and it's worked. And, and so that's been, that's been, you know, it's so funny, like you and I, that we have this podcast interview, like we could have had a lot of emails between us. We had zero. <laughs> 
<laughs> which uh, makes me feel pretty cool. I'm talking to the no email guy. Yep. And we pulled that off because of the, the systems and the processes and the automation is sort of like, there's an invitation, you pick a time, and then you get all of the info. And then on my end, me and my team are thinking about, okay, what do we want to ask Cal? And then you're going to send me the draft of some things and I'm going to edit those things. And then I'm going to study it up uh, the day of, and then away we go. Yeah. So lay on us these principles and some examples for, hey, before we were emailing about this thing and after, here's how it gets done. Well, let's make it really proximate to what we're doing right now, right? So I'm doing a book launch, so there's a lot of podcasts to be done. And I, I have someone at my publisher that I work with to help sort of schedule the podcast and keep that calendar, this or that. We had to figure out a process. So the very easy thing to do would just be, you know, she could just email me. Like, oh, here's one. What is this time work? Here's another podcast. What do you think about this? But I said, okay, that's not going to work. It's going to be so much back and forth emailing that I'll constantly be context shifting. So we created a process there. I thought about the problem and I had tried before with a previous book, just to be concrete, I had tried giving the publisher access to a calendar where I had made open, like here's times I'm available and they would schedule things directly. But I didn't quite like that because I wanted more control over when I schedule things because I have a more nuanced understanding of my calendar. So like what we did this time is we have a shared document and it has different sections. And what happens is I check it a couple of times a week. She'll put into the top section like pending. Okay, here's a podcast. Here's the link to schedule it. Or here's sometimes they're available, which one works for you. And I just go into that shared document and just annotate it. Like this time works for me. Okay, I went to the link and set up this interview. Here's a question. So I basically go into this shared document twice a week, spend about 20 minutes in it. And all of this happens. Now, it mm -hmm. might seem like, well, what's the point? Is it really that hard to just have figured this all out on email? And one of the big principles to, to argue from the book is, yes, that matters. So to take those two checks that are 20 minutes and to spread it out over 20 emails is a huge difference in terms of the impact on your cognitive performance because those 20 emails are unfolding throughout the week. It's a conversation you have to keep tending. The tendit means you have to keep checking your inbox. Uh, it's a thread that it's kind of a, an open loop in your mind. There's a huge drag to having to go back and do those back and forth communications, which brings me to like the larger point about this type of process engineering is that it's annoying. It's almost always less flexible and convenient than just emailing. That's why this hyperactive hive mind is so entrenched because it's easy mm -hmm. and it's flexible and it's really convenient. But flexible, easy, and convenient in the history of business and technology rarely is the formula for getting the best work done or getting the most yeah. work done. And so example after example in my book come back to the same point, which is like it's often a pain to say, let's actually think about the right way to do this in a way that minimizes all these messages. It's a pain. It might generate some hard edges. There might be some exceptions where bad things happen. Still worth it. Yeah. Still almost always worth it because, again, the way to get the most value out of your brain is almost differently going to be something different than what would be the easiest way to organize work. Okay, so I dig it. So we think through it. And do you have any particular prompts or guidelines or steps associated with how we might do some good structured thinking and collaboration about, hey, what is the process by which this thing gets done? Well, one thing I talk about is when you're trying to optimize a process, think about context switching as being something you're trying to minimize. So just like if you're optimizing a manufacturing process, you might try to minimize like the time required to produce the car. In knowledge work processes, you want to minimize context switches. So how many times am I going to have to switch my attention to this thing in order to get it to completion? And so if your process involves back and forth emails, and there's going to be a dozen back and forth emails to figure something out. 
you're now context shifting a dozen times to complete this process. So if you could come up with an alternative where maybe, okay, I, I spend some time in the shared document for 20 minutes twice, you've now reduced the amount of times you have to shift your attention to this and back significantly, and that makes a big deal. And then the other thing to try to optimize is the degree to which you have to keep track of things in your mind, or you feel like things are somewhat unscheduled or out of control. So the more you can actually have a sense of comforting structure, oh, I know how this works, it's in the system, it'll come up automatically, I don't have to keep track of it in my mind, I don't have to hope that, you know, just wait to get an email at some point, it's like, hey, what's going on with this thing, that you feel like this is controlled, it's not just in my mind, I don't feel overwhelmed by various things, that's another thing to optimize. So those are the two general the two general metrics you want to push people. Less context shifting, less sense that things are just up in the air in your mind or ad hoc or out of control. Okay, got it. So those are the things that we're optimizing for in terms of let's let's minimize those those bits. And so I guess there's probably a million different ways we can make a process to to get something done. But could you maybe share a, a few of your favorites in terms of wow, these are maybe pretty flexible. They cover a wide array of, of stuff, work that needs to get done, as well as they're, they're pretty darn time leveraged when you do it. Well, one thing that seemed to come up a lot was making task assignments more transparent. So we often use email to assign tasks and to check on tasks. We keep track of tasks just because they're in their messages in our inbox. That's where we kind of keep track of everything on our plate. When you look at companies or groups that have moved all these tasks out of just people's individual inbox and on the shared like task boards or product management systems, there's often huge wins to be had. Okay. You can go and look at a Trello board for your team or a Flow board or an Asana board if you're more techie. And you can actually see like, here's all the things we're doing and here's their status and here's who's working on what. And like once a day you get together and you all look at it and say, okay, where are we? What do you need? Here's a new thing. Who who should put this, take this on, or should we leave it over here? And that seems like a, a basic thing, but it makes a huge difference. I, I profile a, a guy who runs a marketing company. When they shifted, I talked about how they shifted from their inbox, just everything was kind of in there, to these Trello boards, one per project. And I actually had them show me the Trello boards, and I, I go through them. You know, I kind of go through. Okay, here's specifically what the columns are, and here's what's under it. The relief they got when now their workflow is not about open your inbox and rock and roll with messages, but instead go to the Trello board for the project you want to work on, look at the status of things, take you know what's assigned to you, make some progress on it, update the information. All the information you need to make progress is here on the Trello board, attached to different cards. You don't have to go find it in an inbox. Just the relief they got from that being the workflow. Oh, I'm working on this project now. Here's all the information on this project. Here's what I'm supposed to be doing. Here's everything I need to know to do this. Let me work on this. Then let me update this board. All right, I'm done. Next project. You switch over to that board. It was so much more relieving than instead just having this inbox open where, yeah, you're hearing about that project, but also other projects and everything's coming in and the whole thing is riled together. So, so task boards come up a lot in groups and teams that have moved away from the hive mind. Okay. And so I'm wondering if you zoom into the individual contributor, if they don't feel they've got a whole lot of power influence to to restructure the fundamental processes of, of how stuff is flowing. Do you have any pro tips on how to navigate those conversations or, or bring it up? Well, one of the things I actually talk about is running your own shadow processes individually and having basically an invisible interface to everyone else. Hmm. So the other people in your, let's say you're at a big company, right? And your boss is a jerk. 
<laughs> it's like, it's not going to want to hear this. It's like, I don't care. I want you to answer my emails. It makes my life easier. You can internally have these processes. And I talk a lot about this, like personal task boards, personal communication protocols, where you, you've really worked out your various processes and how information comes in and out of them, how you keep track of things to try to keep yourself out of your inbox. And instead of actually trying to explain it to everybody and say, you know, with autoresponders, like, here's how I'm doing it now, and this is how it's going to work, you just do it internally. And they don't even maybe realize that you have these processes. They don't even really realize that, oh, I was ready to just send a bunch of messages back and forth with you to whatever, set up this meeting or pull together this report. And when you replied, it was actually like there's a list of times you had a calendar schedule app and like choose one of these times and I will have this information ready and it'll be in this folder. Look at it before. We'll meet at this time. You've described some process in an email. They don't even realize it's a process like, okay, whatever. Great. That saves me some messages. But internally, you have it all processed or you have Trello boards internally for your different roles and you're keeping track of who you're waiting to hear back from and things you need more information on and what you're working on this week. I talk about how I, I ran a stealth ticketing system for a while when I had an administrative role where I had to answer a lot of questions from students in my department at Georgetown for an administrative role I ran. I didn't make them use a ticketing system, but I was moving all their messages into a ticketing system. So I could mm-hmm. much better keep track of them with my program manager. We could see what was going on where, who we we're waiting to hear back from. We can annotate them with notes. And then we just email people to get back to them again. That's one of the things I talk about is how to basically structure all of the processes in your own life. Even if all the people around you aren't restructuring how they do it, even if they're still bothering you without constraint, if all of that incoming goes into internal structured processes, you can still have a massive win in terms of how much context shifting and email wrangling you have to do. And so I don't know about all the listeners, but as, as I think about this, I, I'm super excited. Like, heck yeah, let's let's get processes up and going for everything. I recommend thinking about where to start or how to zero in on your first couple wins here. Use your inbox as a guide. So you're, you're in your inbox, you're overwhelmed, right? you're annoyed at all these messages. Start asking the question as you're answering these messages, what is the underlying process that this is a part of and that this message is trying to help advance towards completion? Mm -hmm. And so you just let the messages you're getting be a guide. Then you can start saying, okay, this process kind of comes up a lot. Like a lot of these messages have to do with whatever, like pulling together the weekly client memo, or a lot of these have to be like answering questions from clients about the status of the project. So now you've let your inbox be the guide. Oh, a lot of my communication is about this. Then you can ask the key follow-up, what would be a better process for accomplishing the same thing? So then if you see like a lot of your messages in your inbox or your clients are asking you questions kind of ad hoc, what's the status here? What's that? You might realize like maybe what we should do, and this is just an example from the book, but like schedule a weekly status call with each client. We let them know where things are. We listen to them. We immediately send them after the call a record of everything we committed to during that call. And they know that we are going to be on the phone the next week. You do that, for example, you may reduce the back and forth emails from a client down to basically none. It's mm-hmm. the same thing done. The clients want to know what's going on, make sure the ball is not being dropped, make sure that you're actually doing the things you said you're going to do. That's a lot of what client emailing is, is they're just not sure. Like, I don't know, are you really doing this? I need to keep bothering you. I don't, otherwise, I don't know what's going on. I mean, it's just a case study. But now that you've seen that's what a lot of your emails were, you could actually come up with a better process that has a lot, a lot less back and forth. So let the messages in your inbox influence you. What is this message about? Is there a better way to get that general type of work done? All right. I dig it. And how about some of the 
internal emotional guilt stuff in terms of if folks, they have incoming messages and they feel from habit or compulsion, the need to frequently check the inbox, you, you say, well, hey, part of it is that's kind of how it has to be done because your process is so unstructured. <laughs> you know, what alternative do you have? But if we're, if we're starting to move in this direction and there's some emotional you know, guilt or resistance or trickiness, how do you recommend folks address that? Well, that guilt is really important because it's at the core of why email makes us so miserable. So I really get into those studies where basically the way we're wired as social beings means it is really hard for us to see an email message in our inbox from a person we know and to not answer it. And it's a deeper part of our brain. So just if you feel guilty about these things as a general notice to your audience, uh, that's not a flaw. That's a deeply human reaction because there might be, let's say, a, a prefrontal cortex part of your brain that says, I know I don't have to answer that email right away. We have norms. They're not expecting an answer right away. It's okay if I write them back next week. That's fine. But there's a deeper part of your brain that says, someone in my tribe is tapping me on the shoulder. If I ignore them, that's a problem. If I ignore someone in my tribe who's tapping me on the shoulder, what's going to happen when we come into the famine? They might not share their food and I might starve. We have a huge genetic compulsion to take pairwise communication very seriously. So email really contradicts that instinct. Mm-hmm. Uh, because again, our paleolithic deep brain knows nothing about email etiquette. It's just like, here's a person I know, they want something from me, I'm ignoring them, danger, danger, danger. And that's why we feel this anxiety about our inbox and the fact that it's uh, the fact that it's always growing. So that's a really real thing. And it's a problem. It's also a problem because this guilt is not equally distributed among people. So there's research I talk about in the book where they could look at how you scored on the big five personality scale. And based on how you scored on various attributes of that scale, they could measure real differences in how stressed you get about batching email. So for some Mm. people, your personality type is naturally such that you get incredibly stressed if you say, I'm going to wait to check my email till the end of the day because you're like, all these people need me. Other people have personalities in which they don't mind it that much. Now, the issue is the people who are probably more willing to ignore their inbox at the end of the day are probably going to get more important things done, which means they're going to move ahead probably faster than other people. And what you've now done is accidentally selected for in your company that people that are essentially more jerks (laughs) from a personality (laughs) scale, less conscientious, are going to do better in your company. And so, so now you're selecting for the executive ranks to be less conscientious and more like jerks, which is not what you actually want to happen. It's an unattended consequence. So I think that is also an issue. And so I don't know, this is probably not the most optimistic answer, but I'm, this is why I'm saying until you fix the underlying processes, this is going to be a real problem. It's going to apply unequally. As long as there's a lot of messages that you're not answering, you're going to be stressed. And that stress is going to vary depending on your personality. So your best bet is to figure out how to reduce the number of messages that end up in that inbox. It's just not the right tool for doing a massive amount of communication. So lay it on us, where and when is email appropriate? When it's something sort of new, one-time, different, undefined, uncharted? What are your thoughts? Well, it's a fantastic communication protocol. So if you need to asynchronously deliver information from one person to another, from one place to another, it solved a lot of problems. Before that, we had fax machines, memos, and voicemail. And those were all pretty ineffective and pretty high friction ways of communicating asynchronously. So for the delivery of information, for the delivery of digital files, 
For the broadcasting information, email is a fantastic tool. You would not want to get rid of it. Where it is a problem is where it is the me- where it becomes the primary medium of collaboration. So if the primary unit of you working together with people to solve things is back and forth messages, that's where you get into the problem. If you want to email out, you know, whatever, here's the new parking policy at our company, that's a great use of email. It's better than printing it out and having to put it in, in people's mailboxes. If you need to deliver a contract to someone or like, it'll say, I want to send you like a headshot or something. Yeah, email's great. It's better than putting the mail or using the fax machine. So it's a, a great medium for asynchronous delivery of information and files. But it is a terrible medium for being the primary tool by which you actually interact and collaborate with people. All right. Well, Cal, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about a few of your favorite things. I would say more generally, when it comes to email and it comes to this shift, at least the way I see it, it's less that I'm trying to convince people that they should move away from this type of hyperactive hive mind. Everything is just back and forth messaging. It's more giving the message that that shift is inevitable. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of money on the line. I mean, just like when Henry Ford figured out the assembly line, no one made cars the same way again after that. The same thing is just beginning to happen in knowledge work. There's no way 10 years from now, we're all still going to just be plugged in the email inboxes and checking them every six minutes. There's just so much productivity and value and human happiness on the line. This transformation to a world in which we have more sophisticated ways, less convenient, maybe more annoying, more overhead but more sophisticated ways of actually collaborating. That means we can get a lot more done and we're a lot happier in general. That's going to happen. So the only question is, are you going to be ahead of the trend or not? And that's the way I like to see it. So I'm kind of prognosticating that we're in a very early stage of knowledge work in the digital age. The way we work today is just our very first rudimentary attempt to figure out how should we work in an age of computer networks. The history of commerce and technology tells us that transformations take a long time, but then the phase shifts can be pretty rapid. We're going to have a rapid phase shift away from this world of constant communication. So again, hopefully this, this is a book that's predicting the future more so than it's trying to convince people that we need a better future. All right. Thank you. Well, now could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? A favorite quote that came up kind of in the context of this work came from Neil Postman, who was a, a really well-known philosopher and social critic and technology critic. And he had this really important quote for at least my own thinking about technology in the world where he was saying, Technological changes are not, it's not an addition, it's ecological. It's not additional, it's ecological. I'm a, I'm a little bit messing that up, but the, the basic point is when a new technology comes along, it's not just like, oh, you're in the world you were before plus the addition of this new technology. Instead, a lot of technologies tend to change the entire world, change the whole ecology. So, you know, he famously said that when the printing press came along, it wasn't like you had medieval Europe plus a printing press. Like, no, you had a whole different Europe. It just changed the way everything worked. And that's the way I, I like that quote. It's the way I see a lot of technologies. In 2001, we didn't just have the 1991 office plus email. We had a completely different type of office. What work meant, the ecology of work, completely transformed once this tool was here. And so that quote is important to me because it tells us we got to be pretty self-aware of the way that new technology can completely change things, often in ways that no one planned or no one intended. And once you realize that, then you might say, maybe we should step back and push back a little bit. All right. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? <laughs> so there, there's a bit of research I enjoyed in the book because it was uh, devious, where they were trying to understand exactly what we're talking about, how communication is something that's really deep in us. and We get really anxious when we can't communicate. 
when we know someone wants our attention, we can't give it to them. And so there's this great study where they brought people in and they hooked them up to heart rate monitors. And they told them, you know, it was a study about something, something unrelated. And then they had a confederate come in and say, hey, your phone is interfering with our machines. We're just going to move it for they get the electromagnetic radiation. And when they moved the phone to the other side of the room, they turned off the silent mode. So they could only do this with iPhones because iPhones have the switch on mm-hmm. the side. And then they would call it. So you're in the room, you're doing this experiment, you're all hooked up to all these heart rate stress monitors thinking you're supposed to be working on this computer screen and you hear your phone ring. And it's a really cool experiment because obviously they did not expect to be able to communicate. They didn't need to communicate. They had turned their phone on silent. So they were completely Mm -hmm. comfortable with the ideas of like, during this experiment, I will not be communicating with people, right? But still hearing the, the text message buzz on the phone, their heart rate, their galvanic response, all of the indicators of stress jumped up because they're all hooked up to these things and they could measure it. So I just love that experiment because it meant they were calm, even though they knew rationally, oh yeah, I turned off my phone. I'm not going to hear from anyone who calls me. It's fine. They knew rationally that was fine. I'm doing this experiment. It's fine. Still hearing a text message come through made their stress response go up. I mean, that's all day, every day in a world of email. <laughs> it's like, no matter how you tell yourself, it's okay. I don't have to answer all these emails. We have expectations. We have norms. There's a deeper part of you that when it just sees, here's that person's name and it's in bold and you can see they want something from you and you're not answering it to them, we get stressed. And so I thought that was a beautifully designed experiment to try to capture that real effect. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite book? One I like to recommend is Amusing Ourselves to Death, also by Neil Postman, who I mentioned. It's short and is brilliant and is really original. And basically, it, it gets at that ecological notion. You know, his argument is when you change the technologies with which we communicate or send information, you can actually change the way our brains understand the world, that there's this impact between the medium and the message being delivered. Postman studied under Marshall McLuhan, who actually said the medium is the message. Simple idea beautifully delivered, but it completely changes the way you see technology and moves you away from this notion of like tech is just tools and it can do some things well. So use it in the way that it does things well. And if you're having a trouble with the tool, you're just using it wrong. It's like the typical nerd mm-hmm. engineer like me, like our typical response. And Postman comes in, he says, no, no, it's way more deeper than that. This was before email, but basically you could extrapolate from him. Like the mere presence of email can change the very structure of what work means. His book was about television. The the presence of television changed the way we understood the world. Anyways, really smart, really accessible, and I would recommend that, amusing ourselves to death. And how about a favorite tool, something you used to be awesome at your job? I'm a big believer in time blocking, where you actually schedule out what you're going to do with your time as opposed to going down a list. And so having a good notebook in which you schedule out what you're going to do, give every minute of your day a job. Don't just go from a list and say, what's next? Instead, say, you know, from one to two, I'm working on this and have a meeting from 2.30 to three. Having a good notebook in which you do that is a complete game changer. So in the fall, I put out my own planner called a time block planner that like helps you make these plans. But whether or not you use my planner, I have used notebooks and have built these analog plans for my day for whatever it's been about eight years now. And so that simple tool of a piece of paper in which I see the whole plan drawn out is like by far one of the the biggest impactful things I have in my professional career. And how about a favorite habit? I do a shutdown ritual, and I'm a a big proponent of this, that when you're done with your workday, you have a shutdown ritual where you basically close all of the open loops. So you look at your inbox and make sure you're not missing something. You look at your calendar, you look at your plan for the week, 
If you've captured like notes or ideas on scraps of paper, you get them into your systems, right? You close all the loops. All right, there's nothing else I need to do for work tonight. I have a plan for tomorrow. I'm not forgetting anything. And then you have some sort of phrase or ritual you do to indicate that you're done with that routine. So like I used to actually say the phrase, schedule shutdown complete, mm-hmm. which was like purposefully nerdy. I talked about this in my book, Deep Work, and there's a whole subculture of people who, you know, when they see me now are like schedule shutdown complete. But it was weird on purpose because what happens is that later in the evening, when you begin to feel some work anxiety, instead of going through it, the schedule shutdown has been complete. <laughs> you said, why else would I have said that stupid phrase? <laughs> because I had actually gone through the whole thing. Now, in that planner, I actually added uh, a checkbox that says shutdown complete. So you, instead of having to say that out loud and risk the mocking of everyone with an earshot, you can put a checkmark next to the phrase. But the whole point is like you have something really weird and clear you do to indicate you've done a shutdown ritual. So if you get anxious, you just say, I did that weird thing, which means I did a ritual. So I'm not going to get into the particular anxiety. I'm just going to trust myself that I would not have said something so dumb unless I'd actually gotten things under control. I love that ritual. I've been doing that since like 2007. I started it as a grad student and it's uh, incredibly effective. And is there a particular nugget you say or have written that people quote back to you frequently? It sounds like shutdown ritual complete is one of them. Any others? Yeah, I get shut down complete a lot. So I started, for some reason, so I have this podcast, Deep Questions, where I answer questions from readers. And for for whatever reason, we went down a rabbit hole of, I don't know how I encouraged this. It just was like one of these cycles of superfluous references to Greek mythology. Mm -hmm. So uh, I do these mini episodes once a week where people kind of call in with questions. And now it's become kind of a competition to see who could work in like the most superfluous Mm -hmm. reference to Greek mythology and trying to set up their question about workplace productivity. So I get a lot of that from people now. I don't know how that started, by the way. How could I soar like Pegasus to new oh, yeah. heights Hydras. of productivity? Earlier today, I had a Bacchus reference. Uh, that's a good one. I had a question from a, an English a classicist recently, a classicist professor. So that was intimidating because she actually knew the whole canon. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. But I get that a lot. I get a lot of Greek mythology. And if folks want to learn more, where'd you point them? So you can go to calnewport.com. If you want to find out about the books, and I sign up for my newsletter, I've been writing a weekly essay there since uh, 2007. If you want to hear me instead of read about me, uh, Deep Questions is my podcast. If you want to find me on social media, as we mentioned, you'd be out of luck. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs. It is 100% possible for almost anyone or any job to get to a place where your email inbox is something like it was in 1995. It's something you check maybe once a day. Hey, here's this file I needed. Oh, here's a reminder. Let me look at it. And that's the only role it plays in your life. This idea that you have to constantly be checking and communicating to do your job, that might be true about your job as constructed right now, but it can be reconstructed. So my challenge is to not give up on this utopian dream of a world without email, by which I mean not a world in which you don't have an email address, but a world in which email does not play a central role to how your work actually gets done. Mm. All right, Cal, this has been a treat. Thank you so much and keep on rocking. Yeah, thanks. It was, uh, it was my pleasure. Like uh, Icarus flying <laughs> close to the sun on wax wings. I think we, <laughs> I'm trying to make the reference work. I'm trying to make it work. Yep. <laughs> Maybe not afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> I really love Cal's take about our primal evolutionary need to reply to emails, particularly from your colleagues, your tribe, your folks who they're tapping you saying, hey, I need some help with something. 
And like, ooh, I should help them out. Even if you do have those norms, even if you have determined, no, 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 I'm very clear on my priorities and goals and, and values and that, that this action is not within the 80-20. This is 16 times less important than this priority thing that I'm working on. Even when you know all of that, you still feel that guilt. And so I think that's, that's so wise and true and good to know, first of all, just, hey, where that's coming from. It doesn't mean you're a defective human being. It means, in fact, you, you've got some compassion and some consideration and some good instincts working for you. But just having a breath and say, hey, that's what that feeling's about. Okay. And I've got some time established in which I'm going to reply to it. Oh, hey, there it is on the calendar. So, I, hey, I can rest easy that that's going to happen, but even more so get to the root of it in terms of what are some superior collaboration approaches to do less of that emailing. So huge thanks to Cal. Again, if you want the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced, it's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP647. I hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.